<laughs> he just hangs up. Dear listener, Bill just hung up. No goodbyes, no goodbyes, no nothing. Just hung up. This is what I have to put up with, listeners. Like, he just, he just hangs up on me all the time. Bill, you know the way, like, I love doing the podcast? Yeah. I think uh, the thing that exemplifies this the, much, uh, the most is that there are two level four Pokemon raids going to happen within the next half an hour. And I'm not going to do them. I'm going to record a podcast instead. I know what those words mean individually. <laughs> I can't believe you don't play Pokemon Go. It's the best thing ever. It's so good. I don't like Pokemon. Oh, oh. I, I was going to talk about Pokemon at the end of this episode, but I figured we probably won't have time and you probably don't have interest. But man, it's just... it's No, just... I, I'm, I'm interested to hear about it. Like, I'm interested in it as a kind of a concept, but it's just like, I don't... I've never played the games. I wasn't that into the cartoon as a kid. It's, it doesn't... I don't have any knowledge for, of it to, to really appreciate it. So really quickly, right? Uh, this happened to me the last day and it kind of exemplifies why I love Pokemon Go. There was a big raid happening. So there's like these gyms and then every so often uh, the developers put really powerful Pokemon in them. And okay. you, have, you have to go to these gyms and you have to beat the Pokemon to get a chance of capturing the Pokemon. And the rarer the Pokemon, the harder it is to beat. Ergo, the more people you need. So the whole idea is that it's become this collaborative thing and it's not uh, like a singular thing. And All right. And if, does, if you win, does everyone get the Pokemon? Everyone gets a chance to capture the Pokemon. Oh, okay. You still have to go through the rigmarole of throwing Pokeballs, and if you're unlucky, you don't you don't get the Pokemon. And only one person will get it. No, no, multiple people can get it. Okay. So it's just, it's just luck of the draw. Once, you, once you've defeated the Pokemon, it's luck of the draw as to whether or not you get it. Um, but okay. you're in with a chance. Uh, so anyhow, there was a real powerful one uh, around the corner from us at like nine o'clock at night, and I turned to the captain and was like, let's go, let's go out and let's do this. And so we sat in at uh, this monument, because gyms tend to be at sort of significant public uh, places. We sat at this mm-hmm. monument, and loads of people joined the group, like loads of strangers, like loads of different ethnicities uh, who none of us knew, and there was language barriers, but we all like got together to like beat this Pokemon and there is like real like real uh amateur well not amateur but like low level players and then there was like super experienced players who like brought multiple phones and had like strategies and all this and it was just such like a wonderful atmosphere and then the people who got the power of Pokemon there was like a little celebration on the street and everyone was happy for them and then we all went off home um and back to our normal lives and it's just like this wonderful bit of escapism, and I adore it. I love this game. It is, like, literally life-changing. Like, I've walked so much because of this game, which I wouldn't have done before. Um, so I think it's a great thing, and I cannot get it. But, Edgar, didn't you know that it's terrible that millennials have their heads in their phones all the time, and they're not interacting with the real world except through a screen? You know, part of me kind of, like, checks my behavior every so often when I'm kind of like, I'm in a new environment I haven't been in before, and I've been looking at my phone the entire time. Um, yeah, I think you do need to check that every so often, otherwise the real world does pass you by. But it gets you out to places where you wouldn't usually go. Um, and I think that's cool. You realise I was being entirely insincere with that. I totally get that, but I... Okay. <laughs> but, but like, yeah, at the same time, I'm conscious of that. Like, you want to do everything in moderation, basically, you know? Yeah. Anyhow, uh, so there's uh, Pokemon Corner. Should we start the show proper? Okay, so uh, we have some shout-outs to do. Do you want to go first? Should I go first? What do you want to do? 
Uh, I'll go first because I actually did this two episodes ago, but then we had to re-record that episode and uh, it was lost in the re-record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to shout out uh, a podcast, Chaotic Adequate. Chaotic Adequate. Chaotic Adequate, which is newly launched uh, maybe in the last six weeks, maybe. Um, it's a Dungeons & Dragons podcast. And a friend of mine is one of the, the players in it. It's by uh, Gregory Ackerman, who uh, has done another few podcasts. He's done Masterpiece Bookshelf, which I think I mentioned before. Um, and this is, they're just uh, playing a campaign written by Gregory. Um, and they're, they're, a couple of the cast are like professional comedians and stuff. Oh, cool. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And it's not really like rules heavy. It's just going to focus on the players and their experience and the crack that they're having. So yeah, it's uh, worth worth a look. From the time that you and I played D&D, the biggest thing about D&D for me that really got me into it was just the banter between players. Um, oh yeah, it's, it's such a social activity. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And I mm-hmm. think that it will translate really well to uh, podcast form because like, yeah, the strength of a podcast is getting to know the characters and who they are, and like I mean, characters mm-hmm. as in like the personalities on the podcast, like getting yeah, to know of, of the people speaking. Yeah, exactly. Like getting to yeah. know who they are and like their little ticks and little in jokes and quirks and all that. So that that could work really well. Mm-hmm. I will throw a link in the show notes. And the one of the other players is my metal scholar friend who I, I've mentioned before, who I went to the primordial gig with, and um, so that that's how I how I came across it. Metal scholar, I love it. Yeah, well, one of my metal scholar friends, but the one I, the one I've mentioned before. <laughs> I love how you have multiple metal scholar friends. <laughs> yeah, that's not. I'm, I'm super I'm, cool. I'm not even teasing. That is so. That is so bad. Of course, you're not teasing. I'm super cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, chaotic adequate. I will put the links in the show notes and uh, go go check it out. I cool. I feel like people who listen to this podcast would dig a D and D podcast. Um, I suspect there'd be some kind of crossover in, in the audience, all yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I my shout-out is to another podcast um, mm-hmm. called Unlucky Traveller. And okay. this, this is a new podcast, and it's by Ira Yake. Ira Yake of the blog post fame, he plugged us on oh, a, on a, on a yeah, podcast. Yeah, he, he reviewed us about like a year ago or so, didn't he? He did, he did. And now he yeah. has a podcast, and I listened to the first episode of it, and it's really good. It's really good. It differs from what we're doing Great. because it's a one man thing. Like it's just him talking mm. into a microphone. But um, and it's about it's about world building, um, and him being a writer. And it's it's really interesting dynamic because he's like he's a trucker, but he wants to write and he likes doing like world building sort of stuff. So even within the first episode, like I really latched on to uh, him as a personality. And I think this podcast has legs. So I would highly encourage people to go check it out and go subscribe and have a listen i'll put all the links in the show notes great so yeah there you go two podcasts but remember like listen to the artifacts in podcasts as well like it's important i think that message may be somewhat redundant (laughs) this is true this is very (laughs) (laughs) okay so shall we do follow-up let's do some follow-up okay so this is i've got a lot of stuff to talk about albedo Cut me off if I talk too long, okay? Gladly. 
<laughs> so uh, in the last episode, I uh, mentioned my using albedo as a means of mapping. Mm -hmm. And in the comments after show, a lot of people pointed out that it's a lot more involved than uh, I had outlined in the show. And I totally get that. Like we were just uh, doing preliminary talking about it. Um, but based on the comments, I went and did some research and it's, it's really, really in depth. Like there's so many variables with this to the point where I'm kind of like, maybe I should chuck out the albedo thing and not, not have that as a thing. Um, I don't know. Okay. What, what are your thoughts? You read through the comments. What, what do you think? Does this, does this method still have legs? Um, there was a lot of really good criticism and stuff that we didn't think of and that we mm -hmm. didn't uh, take into account. Overall, I think it's still a viable method. I mean, people people said things like, oh, well, you still have to consider the the climate and the, the ocean currents and plates and stuff. And I, I don't think either of us thought of this as a replacement for thinking about any of those things. Right. It's just, it's another method. Um, and it would kind of obviously have to work in tandem with thinking about ocean currents and climates. Um, and as, as such, I think it's, um, yeah, it is, it is still viable in that sense. And I think to say that, oh, well, it's not really a viable method because you're not taking into account the ocean currents, etc., is it you could equally say that well existing methods aren't viable because you're not taking into account albedo oh that's fair that's a good point you know mm. i mean if if you say oh well we've we've set this up so that all these climates exist here and then you completely ignore the fact that that would actually have a ridiculously high or a ridiculously low albedo that's also not particularly viable yeah so, that's true you know it's it's um I, I was impressed by it as adding another element to wh what we think about and something to, you know, bring it like ever like a little bit closer to reality. And, you know, it's, you know, sure, it isn't a entire method unto itself necessarily, or it won't be, it won't result in something watertight plausible in and of itself, but you're adding another element of consideration. Yeah, like and that's what I thought was really good about it. Yeah, see, like I thought of it like a sort of preliminary checklist sort of thing. Like if you can line out in percentages roughly how yeah. much of your planet has to be a certain type of biome, and then you go through all the things of like uh, constructing like plate tectonics to determine where land is, and then where mm. like the ocean currents and all that. But you constantly have this sort of reference. Yeah, uh, in the background. Now, whether or not you stick with that, that's like entirely up to you. But it's just another sort of check, another check and balance. The the problem yeah, I would have kind of inverted the workflow there, and like you'd make your you'd make your planet with the the other methods, and then check the albedos at the end, maybe, and see if that works. Oh, you could do that. That's true. That you know, yeah, that makes like sense. A kind of a final plausibility check. You know that it will work from all these other points of view, from like latitudes and everything, and climates and all that stuff. And then at the end, it's like, okay, well, this is what I've come up with. Does this work in the real world? Let's check the albedos and see. That's a, that's a very good point. Um, the, the, additionally, that uh, was brought up by a you slash Faxa fan uh, mm -hmm. in, in the sub was that I was over oversimplifying things 
uh, in saying that one can just simply say X amount of uh, terrain is this biome and ergo you have this albedo and that will have this effect on the temperature. Mm -hmm. And they were suggesting that you should take um, latitude into consideration. So like... Absolutely, yeah. Now... And that was something that we didn't we didn't refer to. We did not do this, right? Now yeah. this this is problematic because this makes sense. And the minute it was pointed out to me, I was like, that that makes clear sense. Obviously, uh, that mm. should be done. I went and had a look uh, about was there any models for this? Was there any formulae for this? Uh, it there's not really, uh, which is not great for my method. And also. Counter to what the su the the subreddit said, it's actually the opposite of what people were thinking. A lot of people were thinking that the lower the angle of incidence the sunlight has, mm -hmm. the lower the albedo. Right, but I well, found but I the found albedo one... doesn't change. The albedo is going to be the same. It's just how how much energy it's getting to reflect will change. Right, and but but the. The reflect in my head, I had it that the if the energy input is lower because it's a lower mm -hmm. angle of incidence, the energy output, the reflected, will be lower. Right. And that and that was pretty much the consensus on the sub as well. Um, but I found at least one uh, paper, which is linked in the show notes if you want to go check it out, that says the direct opposite happens, which is kind of mind-blowing, and I don't understand it, that like low angle of incident equals higher reflectivity, and that kind of has thrown an utter spanner in the works. Mm. Let me think about that for a second. So the the angle of incidence is lower, so it's getting less energy, so more counts as being reflected. Is it, is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> I don't that, know. I that honestly kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, it's a bit brain-breaking, to be fair, because a lot of people were suggesting that then it's just like, if, if it's a case of lower angle of incidence equals lower reflectivity, it's just simple sort of trigonometry sort of things. But this is like... Inverse trigonometry, like I don't, I can't wrap my head around what's actually going on here, and it breaks okay. it breaks my brain to think that if the sun was shining like perpendicular down on a surface, you'd expect mm -hmm. the reflectivity to be really high because you're concentrating a beam directly on the surface. But that's not what happens. It's lower than when the ble the beam isn't direct, and that that's kind of I don't know what to do now. <laughs> it's essentially, I, what I, I can kind of I can kind of imagine an explanation for that but i'd have to check like how terms are being defined and stuff to make sure it makes sense i'll put the the paper in the show notes for people to go check check it out um yeah and see, and see what they think so i suppose my my question then would be does this method of using albedo with respect to these biomes still have legs if one doesn't take into account latitude like if it's say if it's just too complicated to to do, and then it's treated only as a sort of first approximation uh, method, like a kind of very very rough uh, guideline sort of thing. I mean, if you're if you're treating it as very very rough and accepting it as very very rough, then probably. Hmm. So this is my thoughts. So I was kind of thinking like, well, screw the latitude thing. You know, just just do it the easy way. Um, and that still gives you some results you can play with, but then the maths guy in me is kind of like, but that's not accurate. But then I'm kind of like, well, it's world building. This we are doing like scientific research, so I'm torn, and I don't know, I don't know mm. what to do. <laughs> so we'll see what we'll see what the sub says. But I'm glad that you're not kind of like, it's an utter no. That fills me with hope. Yeah, no, like you 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 made a good case in the last episode. 
and while it may not be a complete thing in and of itself, I think it, it highlights that there's there's other stuff to to be concerned about and there's other stuff to take care of, like, you know, uh, on the same level as ocean currents and tectonic plates, etc. Yeah, and, and, and on that, just before we move on, I just want to highlight one comment, just because I thought this was a really good method of uh, doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. By a U slash... Sajivru? Let's go with Sajivru. I don't know. Um, and they, they wrote a big wall of text, but I'm just going to hit the main points here. They say that um, how they work out biomes for their world map, they do it in this order roughly. Uh, figure out plate tectonics to give uh, continent shapes and mountain ranges. Figure out wind and ocean currents. Decide the average temperature and figure out what that means uh, for a whole range of uh, latitudes. And then use those currents like for to determine like warm, warm areas, colder areas, and then wind currents. And I think this mm-hmm. is this is good. This is the correct order, I believe. Like I believe this is the order advocated in many world building books, like the Planet Construction Kit and all of that. Um, yeah. So props on that. I would add the albedo thing, but other than that, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I think that's a real solid approach. So just shout out to Sajivru uh, for that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's roughly how I did it when I made my uh, partial Janspar maps. And like, I know I didn't do it, like sit it down and do it matzy, but I figured like I got like equivalent latitudes and equivalent kind of locations as regards mountain ranges and interior of continents or exterior and ocean currents and stuff. And just saw, well, I was like, okay, well, this place is kind of like Korea, so it'll have like the similar climate to Korea, and this place is kind of like Texas. So, uh, yeah, th- I think that works perfectly. Did it by comparison, kind of eyeballed it rather than doing it matzy, but it's it's the same basic kind of method of working it out. Agreed. I think as long as you're not just sitting down and drawing a map randomly, I think yeah. you're okay. Like any sort of extra level of realism. Forest goes do. here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so i think any sort of extra realism you can bring whether it's maths or kind of like a comparative sort of thing i think that's that's worth doing um and mm-hmm. remember many remember many many shows ago i spoke about how i hate random generators mm-hmm. this is effectively why like you know when you fractally fractally uh, generate a world map it's like it's got none of this in it like it's just a computer generated shape and it's not born from anything real. And so I dislike that. Yeah. I think you should always do uh, what Sajivru is suggesting. I think, as I said before, it's useful as a, a kind of a, a starting off point. But yeah, it's, it, you know, you don't just like hit the generator and be done. Yeah, it's not a be all and end all, definitely. Um, yeah. But I think it's just really unfortunate. I think a lot of people, I don't know, they, they, they see it as the be all and end all. And... That, that that I don't I don't like that, and I think a lot of it may actually be down to the fact that people think that they don't have artistic abilities. Like lots of people are kind of like, I can't make a like fancy looking map. It's like you don't really need to make a fancy looking map. You just need to make a accurate map. Like like for mm. example, your map that you drew of the Nalamo the last uh, few podcasts ago. Like the it, of the town of the town. Yeah, this this wasn't a sort of like. Tolkien-esque wonderful bit of cartography no offense it was deliberately you were like I think I'm using your own words here you were like I'm not an artist uh, and so I'm going to how dare you how dare I (laughs) so so I'm going to make it that it's just a quickly scribbled field note sort of thing so you're kind of doubling down on your strengths there in a way 
Yeah, um, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's exactly. I love that phrase. I adore that phrase. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the follow-up on Albedo. I'm going to do more investigation and see, can I come up with something um, a little more solid? But if, if not, yeah, hopefully this, this thing still has legs. We'll see what the subreddit has to say. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I don't really have world building this week uh, or this month um, because I've been making videos again. Hooray! Hey, so this was the auspiciousness I spoke about the last time. This was the episode where we'd be like, I'm back! Woo! Jazz hands! Uh, so all my time has been taken up with that. But what I do want to uh, place in this section is a sort of like State of the Union address. Because I have finally figured out what Artifexian is and how it works. And I'm so, okay. so happy. And I just want to let everyone know how we're going to proceed from this point on. Artifexian is, it's not a social media brand, it's not a podcast, it's more of a state of mind. Is it's, that what you're going to tell us? No, if I ever say something like that, just, you need to hit me, because that's, that's ridiculous. Gladly, I will, I will fly over to Korea, and I will smack you in the face. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, the YouTube videos, I intend to keep them going. Um, oh, cool! cool. Uh, at uh, the very least, th- for the summer, in a sort of free- frequent esque sort of thing. Um, but when the academic year uh, kicks back in, the production cycle is going to slow somewhat because I'm, I'm going to be back at work. But I, I really, I'm going to try making a sort of effort to keep them going. Mm-hmm. So that's a positive point for people who like the videos. Um, the podcast, I figured out the way the podcast fits in with everything is that this should be the sort of proofing ground for topics. So, like, I bring a crazy suggestion to you, we bullet over, we talk with the with the subreddit, and then if it has legs, like the albedo thing, for example, that can become a video. So the, the, mm-hmm. so the podcast will kind of bookmark the videos. It'll be like the preparation phase, proper polished video, and then a sort of after discussion if there needs to be one. Um, so I think that's that's important. So okay, uh, and it makes sense because if we both do world building every month, I can just do like turn that world building into a video. Like I can't believe yeah. I didn't think of this earlier. Like it's so obvious. <laughs> uh, and then the podcast is going to inspire the videos as as seen in the last video. In that I'm going to bring follow up to the podcast. Uh, I'm going to bring follow up to the videos and have like a correction section at the end. So mm-hmm. working on the podcast has like really informed how to make videos for me as well. So it's kind of all beginning to gel. And then the final thing is social media. I've decided that social media should be a place not just to plug the videos because no one likes people just spamming them with nonsense. Well, not nonsense, but, you know, just spam. Um, I'm going to put stuff that doesn't make it in videos on social media. Like very often there's like, like in the last video, for example, loads of people had comments about... How would a calendar work if you were the moon, if you lived on a moon of a gas giant? So that's, yeah. a, that's a bit specific, uh, and I, I didn't address it in the video, but then I can just put that sort of stuff on social media as little kind of like sound bites. Um, and I think that makes a much more cohesive whole, a much more kind of like every branch of Artifexian is working together doing a thing as opposed to just like these des- disparate things. Yeah. That makes sense? It does. 
Yeah, I'm actually really happy. Like, like uh, for a while there, it's kind of like, there's so much going on. There's so much going on. But now everything's come together and it's just like a sense of calm, a sense of peace. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the subject of videos, I just want to ask you something. I want to get your feedback on on a thing. What, mm-hmm. you've, have you, you've watched these videos. Of course you have. You've, I've sent them to you before I published them. Never mind. Scratch yeah. that from the record. Uh, the, in the new videos, I have deliberately stopped using formulae and instead opted to do spreadsheets and make them downloadable for people to use. Yeah. What do you think of this move? Uh, and moving away from doing maths on screen, unless it's absolutely necessary, and putting it, like, hiding away all the, com- all the, uh, all the maths in Excel equations so people who aren't mathsy can still engage with it? Do you know? Yeah. Um, or did this stick out I, at all to you that I've, I've, I made this sort of shift? I, I didn't notice because we're dealing with a new topic. And if it's been, say, we were still doing like orbital stuff and suddenly the equations were gone and I'd been going along doing the equations and then they weren't there anymore before I'd finished the project, I would have noticed. I, I didn't even pick up on it because this is a different thing. And so if, uh, if, say, I made another orbital video, which which I'm, I'm not going to do, I think I've covered orbits fairly well, but if, if in that I decided, well, here's a spreadsheet instead of the equations, um, thoughts on that? Because, like, not everyone likes maths. I love maths, but not everyone does. Um, and I just want to make it, like, accessible to, like, the broadest uh, stroke of people. Yeah, I guess, I guess in terms of having uh, in terms of like being engaging to people and not like putting off and intimidating people who aren't mathsy i think it's a it's a really good move um me being the kind of formalist that i am if if you would do another one of the orbits and you didn't have equations that would kind of that would upset me oh <laughs> <laughs> because i because i like i like things to be consistent um but since you're doing a different topic since that's a, a, a completed topic it doesn't matter um i mean you're giving them the spreadsheets for download, right? Yeah. So for people who want to know what the equations are, just write them in at the end of the spreadsheet. Well, I was even thinking that the sort of person who wants to know what the equations are will be the sort of person that knows to look in the function line of the spreadsheet and just look at the equation. Uh, I don't necessarily know how to interpret that kind of information. So I think, I don't think it's... I, I would be much happier to have it written there down for me explicitly. Okay, that's a, that's, that's a good point. I, w- I will add that the equations I use, will always use in the videos, will never have any weird Excel functions. Like, they're not going to be like if and or statements where you need to know a syntax. They'll just be basic maths, you know? Right. I mean, like the, the, the worst is that you'll need to know that, like, a multiplication sign is the asterisk and not the X. Um, but I, you know, I get your point. Put in the equations as well. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's something for me to consider. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a very very small amount of extra labor to like on on your end to save a lot of hassle for people hmm. on the other end. Agreed. No, I think that's that is something. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take a note. Hold on. Note taken. Thanks, Bill. I don't know if you could, you're, you're very welcome. I don't know if you can hear, there's a big um, industrial noise happening somewhere outside my flat right now. Oh, there's insane sirens happening here. This is wonderful for podcast recording. 
Oh, well, I can't hear them, so I can't hear your sirens. Maybe well, they're not being picked up. Also, I can't hear your industrial noise, so that's, that's good. Hopefully, oh, good. the listeners will be none the wiser if I cut this part. Hey, maybe we're both hallucinating. Maybe. <laughs> Almost certainly not. There is a, there is a, <laughs> there is a zero, zero percent chance that we are hallucinating right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is, that is all uh, I want to say, basically. I've been making videos, and this is where the world building has gone. Uh, so there's not much to talk here. And I just want to let Artifacts see you know about what's happening in terms of the videos mm-hmm. and the overall, the overall shtick. Um, with the various aspects of uh, artifact scene. So yeah, I am happy. Great. Long may it continue. And I'm having so much fun doing the new graphics as well. Oh, I love yeah, that. the new graphics are slick, man. I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning After Effects now. And like, I'm, this is, you know, definitely not pro level After Effects usage. Um, like it's really basic sort of stuff, but I'm liking it. It's good. I'm half thinking about downloading a course about how to like do motion graphics in our, uh, in After Effects and like making a concerted effort to like get as slick as possible uh, with yeah. these things. Um, like there I've might got, be something on, on Udemy or on Coursera or something. I th- Yeah, maybe. I think lynda.com has a plug. <laughs> I think lynda.com has a good course that a lot okay. of people, uh, a lot of YouTubers um, have used to learn this stuff. Because, like, it's okay. great in all learning motion graphics from YouTube, but it's very disparate stuff. You know, it's not like a, you don't get a, like, from beginning to, like, advanced in one row, and it's all kind of, like, everything's logically laid yeah. out. You kind of have to, like, hunt and peck your way through stuff. Um, so there's downsides to learning for free. So, yeah, the new I'm liking the new graphics as well. I'm having so much fun. But, oh, but Bill, Bill. The, the, the production cycle is so long now. It took me, like, I'm not even kidding, a week to just make and animate the graphics for the last video. Like, a full week of getting, like, starting at, like, 10 in the morning and finishing around 6 when the captain got home. Day in, day out, a full week. It's, wow. it's very labor-intensive. And that's likely down to my ignorance about the program. So hopefully that's going to, like, uh, reduce somewhat. <laughs> Yeah, you'll you'll improve your workflow. Hopefully, um, but yes. Okay, so that is that. So shall we do? Shall we do some actual world building? Shall I pass let's do some world building? Let's pass this bat on onto Bill, who once again <laughs> has kept up his end of the bargain and made this a world building podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all the work around here, man. I know. Um, right? <laughs> so uh, I've written a new uh, document from Lamo. This is unlike you, Bill. No, it isn't. It's very like me. God. Always what says, do you mean? Yeah, I, love, I love how you like shut down the, my little crappy jokes. <laughs> <laughs> With like dead, flat pan seriousness. And I'm like, there's, there's an in Bill here. We've got a little joke. And you're like, no. <laughs> no never change. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. So you've written... You're, sorry, say, say that all again. You've written a document. An, a, another document from Lamo. So continuing the series that I did, the envoy who's exploring Lamo and writing back to his home country. Cool. And this one concerns uh, some of the story of uh, King Tengsha and the military tactics that are prevalent in Lamo. And we had King Tensha before. Yes. Yeah, he cre- he crept up in previous writings. Well, so there's a familiar cast of characters. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 you know it's a it's a continuing 
series. Saga, some might say, Bill. It's not quite saga length yet. He did it again. He did it again. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> what's the uh, so what's the subject matter? Uh, this one is about, as I said, the the military tactics um, and the the military culture, I guess, of Namo, and and how how it works, how they fight there. And so the the envoy um, highlights three areas about King Tensha's prowess. Um, yeah. And those are his political prowess, his strategic prowess, and his tactical prowess. Exactly. Um, and the uh, inspirations for this, because I'm getting a very strong real-world analog here, but I just want to see, am I right, without actually saying it, so keep talking. Uh, no, I want, to, I want to see who you think it is. No, don't do this. I shouldn't have brought that up. Uh, okay, based on uh, his political prowess, mm-hmm. uh, the thing about like uh, strong alliances and uh, maintaining peaceful relationships with people that you, you are under his dominion and all of this, this reminds me of the Mongols. Okay. Uh, because I, I hope I'm right about this, but uh, didn't the wasn't the whole thing about their empire and why it worked so well because they just let people do their thing under their rule. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't kind of like, you must now adopt Mongol religion and you must now adopt Mongol whatever. They're kind of like, we own y'all, but like you do you. It's all good. And then people are like, oh yeah, okay, cool. We'll do that. Yeah, just, you know, give us your troops and give us your taxes and we'll be grand. Yeah, no hassle. Like, so I'm getting the impression yeah. that King Tencha is quite Mongol inspired. Um, He actually, that wasn't something I had in mind. Oh. Um, that just kind of grew naturally out of how I had described Tensha and how I had described Nlamo in the stuff I'd previously written. But yeah, there's, defi- there's definitely a kind of a, a parallel to be drawn there. Yes! One point to Edgar. <laughs> uh, so that's his political prowess, uh, is this idea that he rules uh, well and keeps people... Um, under his dominion by allowing them to just, you know, be the way they yeah. are. Is that, that an accurate reading? I would say so. And we saw that in the the last um, thing I wrote, the calendar. That the calendar, he, you know, explicitly, like, people can still use their own calendars and they can still, you know, figure out their own religious festivals whatever way they want to. It's just this is the calendar that we are using for these purposes. And it doesn't, you know, take away from... People, other nations within Lamo doing what they want to do. Yeah, exactly. So it's just further yeah. continuing the character of Tensha. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the strategic stuff, any sort of real world uh, analog here? Because m- my my knowledge of military tactics is not great. Um, um not not really directly. Uh, I guess there's there's a little bit as I said before. It's, um, Lamo is geographically at least, uh, somewhat similar to South Africa or to, and to Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I'm not attempting to portray like direct analogs of real world cultures at all, uh, some stuff is still kind of an inspiration. You know, like you said, like the Mongol thing is, is, is something you could say about the, the, the first paragraph here um yeah and also in, in s- but but and also like just by uh, making sort of realistic decisions on the part of your characters like there's only 
a limited amount of conclusions one can get to. Like, if you're going to do the thing where Tencha allows his people to be who they are, then, you know, you're, you're already down the Mongol route, whether or not you intended to, in the first place. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and in thinking about this, and in thinking about, like, because I, I have a fair bit of this character's story about, about Tencha and how he became who he is and how he became the king. Um, oh. it's, it's all It's all in the back of my mind there. Oh, that's got to be on the podcast sometime, man. It's, yeah, it, it might be. Oh, I'm interested. Okay, anyway, keep going. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens when the envoy gets to the capital. Um, oh, teaser, cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some similarities anyway in what I've said here about Tensha and, and the, what we know or what I've read about uh, King Shaka of the Zulus. Okay, so... It is a similarity here that he Tencha comes into power and then his big innovation is that he makes a formal army. Is this something mm-hmm. that King Shaka did? Because again, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about uh, Shaka to really say, but he he changed the way that the army worked and he he reorganized it um, and he he made it a, a lot more effective. And he synthesized the innovations of a lot of other leaders and kind of brought them together and made them more effective together. And uh, I guess the, the part of it as well, and this kind of refers a little bit to the first paragraph, is the Zulus were a really, really small nation. Um, they were like kind of confined to one small area and before Shaka. And his conquest and his like dominion was so successful and so powerful that the Zulu were much larger afterwards, as in like people who had considered themselves to be a different peoples were afterwards part of Zulu and they had a Zulu identity. Hmm. Um, so no, it's, it's not the same as, as what I did here, where it's more kind of pluralistic. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he was, a, he was a, a great political success for different reasons. Um, so I'm kind of backtracking there a little, but yeah. So so the the second genius, the the strategic genius, and how he reorganized the army and stuff is I like, probably make some parallels with Shaka. Okay, and so TLDR for the listeners, uh, prior to Tensha, um, there was the the sort of military in a way was kind of small uh, and and scattered. The impression I get, and then he comes along and f- like makes a formal army where warfare is their primary pursuit like they are there there mm-hmm. to fight and yeah. he was also um his great quality is that he knew when to engage and when not to engage this is a good quality exactly. to have yeah yeah <laughs> um so yeah that was his second one and his third one is tactical yes do you want to tell us a bit about that now, I've done something very specific here. This is a, a, a clear analogue to some some quite specific thing in history. And canny viewers or long-time viewers or, probably, or listeners, rather, will probably be able to make a good stab, even without reading it, at what I might be getting at. Oh, um, God, I can't. Oh, no. Should I be able to? Yeah. I mean, just think what does Bill like, and you might figure it out. Um... So what, what I've done here is essentially 
uh, warfare in Lamo was traditionally and typically quite small scale. So it was skirmishes and raids and not a lot of large pitched battles. And when they did have large pitched battles, it was uh, it would take place typically in the form of opposing lines of spearmen. So something like a phalanx or a shield wall kind of situation where they would face off and kind of push uh, rather than it being a massive brawl or rather than it having like lots of different components. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Were phalanxes like real life League of Legends people? What? Like a like, like a tug of war. League of Legends is like the tug of war thing. It's, isn't it a, a tug of war game? That's how you describe it. I don't it? know. Okay. Uh, so TLDR is um, our phalanx is just like that's all they do. They get in the line and they just shove at the other line. Is that uh, it? essentially that they think that that is how it actually tended to work? Yeah. Um, oh. And so the Battle of Thermopylae was not at all like it was in three hundred. <laughs> It was just like a line of dudes, and they they had really really low kill rates because they were they were so well protected, and both ends were so well protected that you just had to push and push and push until one side buckled. Oh, so it was like attrition. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like it's oh. the opposite of a pull of, a tug of war. It's more of a sort of a push of war. A push of war. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Because again, my military knowledge is is like mm-hmm. almost non-existent. So yeah, so like in ancient Greek times and stuff, the, the phalanxes, they, they had low kill rates and it was largely just kind of lines of spearmen shoving against each other. And then of course you did like have like cavalry and chariots and stuff to, to spice things up. Spice <laughs> um, things. <laughs> but the, the majority of, of kind of ancient Greek warfare, Bronze Age warfare would have been phalanx based. Okay, I, I realize this is not part of your piece at all, but like, do you, why? This seems really ineffective. Like, if you've trained a whole bunch of killing machines and like given them weapons and stuff and their kill rate is really low and all they're doing is like shoving into one another. Well, eventually one side buckles and then they flee and then they, they get like quite a lot of kills. Okay. In like the chase afterwards. Okay, um, okay. So the, so the, the slaughter like, I mean, happens afterwards. I, I would question th- that you said you've trained a whole bunch of killing machines. Oh, have you not? I mean, oh, I suppose maybe well, you've... Not, ne- not, not necessarily. I mean, I don't know that they all had like professional standing armies. I'm sure a lot of people would have been, you know, farmers a lot of the year or done other stuff. Okay, so is this why the sort of attrition thinking came along because you don't have a bunch of killers you you have just regular people and it's like well regular people can push like you know it's fine um regular people don't well, need like, to be like you know be proficient with i don't know double great swords <laughs> yeah exactly i mean like just like how expensive would it be to to have enough capital like excess capital in your society to turn everyone into a ninja oh wouldn't that be awesome? You know? Everyone's a ninja. It would be terrible. <laughs> um, so, the... Anyway, going on with the Lamo before I interject with more. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that was the, the main kind of large-scale warfare was line, lines of spearmen or pikemen or whatever. And uh, the innovation used by Tensha or introduced by Tensha was that he broke it up so that instead of having just a line opposing a line, his enemies would use the traditional line and he would have a field of widely dispersed uh, 
archers and like javelin throwers and things. Um, and they would concentrate their fire on one particular area of the enemy line to weaken it. Mm-hmm. And then a column rather than a line of his forces would like directly attack that weakened area um, in an effort to, to break through. So they'd probably have like lose quite a lot of people at the very front um, of the column, or maybe like the people at the front of the column were, were better armored or something. I haven't figured out the exact specifics of this, um, but they, so they would concentrate a large amount of power right into the area of the enemy line that had been weakened. And then they would punch through the ranks and then the line, the enemy line would fall into disarray. And so I take it this isn't your innovation in military tactics. This is obviously based on something. This is based on something historical. Okay. Now, can you tell me? Because there's no way I'm going to get this. <laughs> okay. What do I really love? Uh, Who oh, do I really love? Oh, Napoleon. 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 So th- is this a Napoleon innovation? Uh, I don't I don't think he came up with this, but the French army used this a lot at the time of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. I think it was like late monarchist um, French tactics that carried over into, into Napoleonic times. Oh, okay. Now, mm-hmm. does this system have drawbacks? Yes. As I said, you're, you're very likely to lose a lot of people at the front of the column. Um, and, you know, the thing we have to remember here is this, this was used a lot by, by Napoleon. Not exclusively and not, not as much as has been thought for or has been portrayed in history, kind of in popular history. It wasn't as prevalent as, as a lot of people think, as far as I know. But um, it was used quite a lot by Napoleon. Uh, but, you know, he did lose. So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of, he took on an entire continent pretty much constantly for about 20 years straight. So, <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. Um, so he did a good job, like, um, uh, yeah, well, what can happen is I, I imagine in this context, it would be very uh, easy to be encircled by the line. Like if the line just kind of closes in around the column and encircles you, that would be very uh you'd be you'd be destroyed yeah the column would be destroyed i was i was thinking that i talked about what would happen if you flanked them um yeah yeah that makes sense um so you'd have it would have to be like really really fast that you break through it'd have to be like quite a sudden um uh engagement and i'm assuming uh, this tactic works well in Namo because obviously your man is saying that this is a great innovation of tension like he's used this to good effect yeah okay yeah, like there, there are definitely drawbacks, and you know, I'm I'm assuming Tenshi didn't win every single battle that he ever fought with it, but mm-hmm. and, uh, and so yeah, there's there's definitely drawbacks. You know, it's not never fun to make anything like too powerful. Agreed, agreed. And this bit at the at the end of this paragraph here about the champions. Yeah. Now again, you're gonna have to humor the Philistine here, right? I didn't mm-hmm. realize this was a thing. Is this actually yeah. a thing in real life? Champions. Yeah. I thought this was. was a medieval fantasy thing. No, it, it was practiced, as far as we know, in ancient Greece. Oh. Uh, so, like, you know, the stuff you see in, in films. Do you ever see Troy with, with like, Brad Pitt? Ooh, I think so. I don't yeah. know. Well, there's, like, a thing like that at the very beginning, and he, he, like, massacres the enemy army dude, 
and that's like means that they have won the battle because it was agreed that they would use champions to to fight. I mean, I don't think it ever really took place in kind of massive, massive, massive wars. Like, not it wasn't done to settle the Napoleonic Wars, obviously, or like you know, huge, huge, uh, like continent-spanning things. But in regional wars and in kind of intercity conflicts and stuff, I think it did happen. And it happened, as I think, in in areas of South Africa as well, of Southern Africa. And is is the whole reason why this would have sprang up as a as a a means of warfare to like just reduce casualties? As in, you get to keep your everyone keeps their armies, but we just decide before we all kill one another who actually won by doing this one on one thing. I guess so. Okay. Okay. Because again, in in like fantasy television, like Game of Thrones, it's kind of just portrayed as like the nobles can't fight, so they just get a, another person to fight on like their personal behalf. Um, mm-hmm. But the concept of there being like individual champions for entire armies—well, it's not really for an entire army; it's just for an entire like ruler, say, which is the same thing, mm-hmm. kind of. Sorry, I'm the stream of consciousness here. I'm really sorry, Bill. That's okay. Like, yeah, but uh, it does sound kind of strange, but as far as I know, I think Champion Warfare is the name for it. And as far as I know, Champion Warfare is uh, an actual historical uh, thing that may well have happened. Do you know if there's people specifically trained to be champions? Or would they just pull someone from the army and be like, hey, you, champion, come on? I don't know. Hmm, like if you had like the Brock Lesnar of like champions, like this prized fighter who just like shows up and does his thing, kind of like the mountain as well, just shows up, yeah. does his thing, goes away and then just like lives a happy, peaceful life in like the rural, rural England analog and then every so often gets a call and is like, hey man, you got to go defend me. <laughs> That'd be class. <laughs> be really cool. <laughs> um... So yeah, anyway, what, anything else to add on that? What about the last two paragraphs? Anything uh, noteworthy? Because my two uh, questions were, where are you getting the strategies from? Is this yeah. Mongols? Mm. Oh, uh, sorry, the other thing about the strategy is the skirmishers were an important part of Napoleonic era warfare. Okay. Both for columns, as the Napoleon used, and the more conventional line formations. They, they both had skirmishers. Um, uh, sorry. Take off, uh, like officers and things. I'm really sorry, Bill, but I have more follow-up questions. I'm really just just Go for stop it. me when when my ignorance of warfare begins to annoy you. Um, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. When when the, did this this practice of kind of like formalized warfare, as in like you know, there's a line here and there's a road there, and then you're a circle of these lads. Did this stop? We don't do this anymore. Surely. We don't, no. like, we don't line, like, the U.S. troops during, like, Iraq didn't line up in, in formation. So when did this stop, and why did it stop? I'm going to assume technology, but, you know, yeah, enlightenment. The, yeah, no, te- technology would be a huge part of it. I guess um, the American Civil War would be kind of one of the more modern types of war, or, like, one, one of the, the kind of the first wars that was, that was more modern. Uh, maybe the Crimean War, so that would be... The mid eighteen hundreds, I think the Crimean War was the eighteen fifties. And, and, and when we say more modern, we mean like the abandonment of these formations, and then the replacement with what? Like just random trenches, trenches, trenches. Yeah, trench warfare was a big thing in Crimea, and I think in the Civil War, the American Civil War as well. 
and then obviously in World War One. What's the advantages of trench warfare? Um, what, what does it bring? What's its feature that it brings to the battlefield? Like, why would we adopt trench warfare? It's, it's over? very, very, very easy to defend. It's very defensive, so it it makes it's it's hard for the other guy to kill you. Okay, so again, it's another attrition thing, is it? I guess so. We just is war just attrition? <laughs> I don't know. All, Maybe. Hmm. This is really this is what happens when you have a podcast based on military stuff with Edgar because again, <laughs> I don't know anything about this. Huh. That's really interesting. Cool. So that was uh, King Ten- Tencha's three great feats as a ruler, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Cool. I like it. It's good. I learned something about warfare today. <laughs> Uh, there's many things uh, on, on Artifacting that I dread doing. Uh, I've spoken about my dread of doing atmosphere videos. I also dread doing warfare videos because I feel like, you know, if you mess up a space thing, not many people really know about space and also not many people care. But I feel like in this sort of nerd sphere that we operate, I think a lot of people have taught long and hard about how war plays out. Um, so that's another thing that like kind of... Um, uh, worries me if I ever go to do like how to war videos. Just don't do them. That's right. I could just not do them. In fact, I've been avoiding doing these things for like four years, so I'm, I'm quite proficient in the avoiding of things I don't like. Well, like uh, there's a lot of topics to do, you know. <laughs> there is true. That, that that is true. There is literally everything to cover. Yeah. Um, this is the great thing about running a uh, a world building channel. The literal literal endless fodder. It just you just like, can keep going. Um, yeah, Maybe we should world build, world build. Like, how will people in Takar world build? Oh, meta. Seriously meta. I don't think I'll be doing that, but that's a good suggestion. No, let's never do that. <laughs> <laughs> I will quit. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was King Tencha. I like it. It's good. Uh, Thank you. I hope to hear more from it, especially his rise to power. That seems like it could be a very interesting story. Um, and it we'll, is quite interesting. We'll... we'll <laughs> If I don't say so myself, the writer of said story. <laughs> um, I d- we'll probably cover this in the green room because of the book I was reading. But um, yeah, I, I, given the sort of headspace I'm in at the moment, that would be a really interesting to read. Like the, the rise mm-hmm. of a prominent figure and a prom- like a loved figure as well. Um, yeah. I get the impression. Like that's a re- that would be a really cool thing to read. So hopefully in the future, you'll, you'll have it for us. Mm-hmm. Ooh, very coy altogether. Okay, shall we move on to green room, or have you got anything else to add? I think I think that's everything I have to say on this. Green room, here we are. <laughs> we are. Can we do some uh, book corner? Yeah, let's. I've, I've been reading slash listening, and I really like the book I've been reading, and I want to talk to you about it. Cool. Uh, I just finished reading uh, Name of the Wind by Patrick Rosfus. Um... And it is amazing. <laughs> it is so, so good. And I am so sorry that it's over. I loved every second of it. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's just so good. And I'll bang on at length in a bit about why it's so good. But you have read this book too, Bill, I believe. I have read this book, yes. Did, did you, uh, what did you think of it? Like, did you, similar response to me? I, I really enjoyed it. I think I think it's great. Um, I think I think it's quite uh, it it works quite well on a couple of levels. Um, 
and there's some stuff in it. And I've, I've read the sequel as well. And there's some stuff in it that ought to be annoying, but it's handled in such a way that it's it's quite clever. Okay, now, 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 sorry to interrupt here. Spoiler alert. We should probably put okay. here. And then yeah. can you tell me what this annoying stuff is and to see whether it's on my list, my flag list? Well, like, the, so the main character, Kvothe, or Kvoth. Kvoth. Not, let's say Kvoth. Kvoth. Yeah, it's Kvoth. Is, oh, because you've listened to the audiobook. And also, Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss has a podcast in which he goes through each of the names blow by blow. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, yes, it is it's doubly confirmed. It's Kvoth. Kvoth. Um, he he should be really annoying because he's so talented and he he's so good at everything. Oh, I okay. I complained to the captain about this. She she had also read the book, and I like yeah. halfway through the book, I was like, he's just perfect. Like he's a musician. He's like uh, he he's yeah, a musicians bad, are pretty perfect. You what? Musicians are pretty perfect. Well, well, we are. I don't think I can call myself a musician anymore. But Bill, you are pretty perfect. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he's a musician and he's uh, an actor. He's also a badass for like living on the streets as a beggar and surviving there. He's really intelligent. He's like naturally proficient at a whole ton mm-hmm. of things. And I was a, like, there was a large chunk of the book where I was like, I don't like this character. Like he's so, he's just too brilliant. Now, I have an interesting theory about why I came to terms with that. Do you want to outline why you thought that was not annoying? Um, I think even in the context of his own narrative, it's moderated by the fact that he's dirt poor <laughs> and he's like, he is at kind of the bottom of the, the social hierarchy in, in the context of his, um, of his settings. Like, you know, he, he's, he's a, he's, he's a, a beggar and he's an orphan. And even then when he goes to the university and is become more part of the society, he's like still an outsider and he can't really access a lot of it because of his poverty and because of his lack of kind of social capital. Um, so, so there's that and that, that went a long way to, to moderating like the struggles that he faces despite all of his brilliance. And second of all, um, he pretty much tells you right at the start. So for, for anyone who's, who hasn't read it and isn't bothered by these spoilers, um, the, the framing device is this character, Kvoth, telling his life story to someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is from a kind of uh, a race or a culture of storytellers, of actors and entertainers. The Adamaru. Uh, the Adamaru, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's from that culture and he pretty much tells you right at the beginning that he's going to embellish the hell out of what he's telling you. So... You know, this this is Kvoth saying Kvoth is a badass. It may not be entirely trustworthy. Yeah, you see, now, I missed that bit at the start. I didn't realise it was explicit. It hit me halfway through the book, and I was kind of like, wait a minute, Edgar. Well, I, I don't know if it is, like, literally explicit, but, like, it's very, very strongly right. implied, at least. Yeah, so, yeah, I had the exact same thing. Uh, the, the, the beggar thing, the being poor thing, uh, that didn't register as enough of a... Uh, contrast to really redeem his character for me but it would uh, mm-hmm. when when it suddenly dawned on me that like all of this could be false or at least yeah. really heavily embellished I was like genius that's brilliant because every action he takes then you're kind of like 
did this happen exactly like that? Yeah. Or is Kvothe just like bigging himself up? And that makes it just so much more complex. And it, you totally yeah. get past the point that he is a really annoying, perfect character. Um, because who, like if you're telling your own story, like, you know, like if I tell people I'm a YouTuber, I inflate my numbers by at least a couple of million. Like you obviously, <laughs> <laughs> like you obviously big yourself up. So it just makes perfect sense. And it's, it's glorious. I love it. And it reminded me of you, Bill, because of th- me. Th- that sounds really bad, but I actually didn't mean it like that. Uh, the it reminds me of your thing because about, you're a liar, Bill. Because you're a liar. <laughs> um, it reminds me of your thing about the reliable narrator. Yeah, absolutely. This, this whole thing that you have in your writings, where you know it's kind of like, is this person giving an accurate depiction of the world? We don't know, and then. When that hit me in the book, I was like, oh, this is like Bill, except in a published book. Um, yeah. So that was cool. That was really cool. Yeah, you very much have to consider what the in-universe text is when you're reading this book. And, you know, that is, you've got Kvoth telling you Kvoth's story. And he is, you know, an entertainer. He is a storyteller. And he says at the very start, he is a storyteller. Exactly, um, which I think is a really good move on yeah. Patrick Rothfuss's part. Um, the other thing I really liked is the... I usually really, really dislike when books are written in the first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Hobb did that or does that in all the books. I don't know, but I read one series... Oh, what was it called? The Farseer trilogy, and it was all in first person, and it just... It's is that so- Assassin's, Cre- Assassin's um, Quest and Assassin's whatever? Yeah, is that part of the Farseer trilogy? I can't remember. I think I think the Farseer trilogy is that one, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but that was all first person, and that just sucked me completely out of the world. I just Really? Yeah, I just didn't, I didn't, because it, I don't know, it's kind of jarring, because like, you know, epic fantasy, and then it's like brought right down to a personal level, and I get that that can be a good contrast for some people, but for me, it just kind of took me out of this grand, fantastical world. Hmm. Whereas this was brilliant because of the framing device. Um, yeah. And because again, I got the impression that I was listening to a person telling the story, and there still is this vast sort of world going on out there. We're just getting a singular aspect. And it was, it's not that Robin Hobb didn't do it well, but there's just something different about the way it was constructed in this book that just like I was totally sold. Mm-hmm. I was like, this, I, I, I suspended disbelief like immediately with this. Like, it was great. It was brilliant. Um, I also like. I don't know how it works with audiobooks and things. I'm assuming there isn't like a blurb, or maybe there is in the the software somehow. But you know, in 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 the blurb of the book, he kind of mentions all these things that he's done. You know, like he's he's fought a dragon, um, and he's uh, uh, consorted with demons and lain with fey, and he once learned a language overnight, or that maybe that comes up in the body of the text or whatever. Uh, and then you see some of those happen. I can't remember if the language one happens in the first book. Does it? That's news to me. Okay, well, there's there's, there's something at some point about uh, Kvothe learning a language overnight. Or learning a language in one day or something like that. And, again, it's, you know, it's presented as like, oh, he did this incredibly badass thing. You know, he learned to speak a language just like in a day. And then when you get to that part of the book... It's kind of true. <laughs> and it's like, it, yeah, he kind of does that, but the context and the, the the specifics of it 
aren't exactly what you think they are from the way the story is told. And it's really clever. Oh, so the blurb even builds into this fantasy as well. Maybe, maybe not exactly the, the blurb, but I think so, yeah. I think like a lot of the mm. the, the way it's presented, what I, uh, if I was being very academic about it, you could call the paratext. Oh, Jesus. Um, when yeah. it's not the marketing speak, it's the academic speak with, with Mr. McGraw over here. I could like, actually like one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the, did, is there anything about the book you didn't like? Um, I don't recall the female characters being all that brilliant. Um, but again, maybe that's down to something on Kvothe's part. Like maybe that, that'll make more sense ultimately. And I'll have to reread it to be sure. I mean, there, there definitely is a lack of female characters. How many can I think of off the top of my head? Like excluding like his mother, say, who's a very, very minor character. Like two well there's the Third. the girl who lives under the university yeah that's one and then there's oh, there's the name? love interest who, yeah. who keeps seeing at the at the place he plays and yeah. there's a couple of students oh is there a couple of students okay yeah so there there is one of the librarians Right. And are there any, like, are any of the, the lecturers or professors or anything, women? Like, uh, no, at least not on, like, the council that he, he's continuously right. brought in front of because he's continuously breaking the rules. Uh, and I don't yeah. think his teachers are either. Yeah, so there's a lack of representation there. Yeah, and you're right that they don't actually play th- that big a role and don't have that much agency, I suppose. That's, 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 a, valid, that's a valid point. Um. A lot of people had problems with uh, with the setting and how it was talked about. Because um, I, um, yeah, I, I listened to a lot of reviews and watched a lot of videos on this, and a lot of people were kind of like, like he doesn't expand upon his world. Like he drops mm-hmm. all this like small detail. Like it, you get the impression that he's really worked out his his currency system. Because he's constantly right. he's constantly talking about currency, and I get that because he's poor and stuff. But it's like I get the impression that there's a method behind that, and like the cities right. are really well taught out and depicted. But then you don't get a sense of the broader world at all, really, the way you would in other stuff. And I'm like, well, that's that's irrelevant because I think that's that's even better because it's kind of like going into the other books. You you feel like there could be more to explore as opposed to like exposition dump at the start where we learn, you know about the the entirety of like the plan the the world all at once you know yeah um it gets better in the second book the second book you see more of the world and like I, it's a nice change of pace i think because again epic fantasy is like you know vast and sprawling you know you go from corner of the world to corner of the world but it's kind of cool that this is all taking place in a uh, a relatively small um circle you know yeah yeah because it's, yeah, it's a a boy goes to school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's more like Harry Potter in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And then he has, he, when he goes out and fights that dragon, that wasn't that far away, that place, that town. Um, because he, he rode it on a horse in one day. So yeah. it kind of like... Enough time to learn a language. Enough, exactly. <laughs> oh, and you know what's a really cool detail I really liked? And perhaps speculation on the part of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. But when he buys that horse... Um, for the listeners, again, spoilers. Um, he needs he needs to buy a horse to go to to go to a place to advance the plot. Um, Zenithor or something. You what? 
Denethor or something. Is the yeah, is it? something like that. And uh, the horse, he needs a really good horse because he has to. He's going to ride it like you know hard throughout the entire day, like no breaks. Um, and you're the guy who's selling the horse brings out this like big noble looking steed and he's like perfectly black black hair and it's a, like a prime specimen and he gives it a, he gives the horse a name um mm-hmm. which he thinks means something like i think like twilight or something like that i can't remember what it, what he thought it was uh, and it's in a different language than the one he speaks but what he actually calls it is like something like white sock and mm-hmm. This causes um, the person selling the horse to be like, he's in on the secret. And the secret is that the horse is in fact died. He's not entirely black. Um, ergo, oh, yeah. Yeah, ergo, he's not a, uh, a, a what you call a pristine specimen. So he gets it for cheap. And then yeah. the, the internet speculates on this, that there's like, that's his inherent sort of connection with language and the whole idea of like naming the wind and it's all about like the words you speak and things like that. He didn't know he was doing this, but he was like compelled through mystical forces to like do it. And I think that's really cool. Um, that he has this like proficiency with language that he doesn't know about and that impacts on the actual story. I think that was, um, if that's true, like if that's planned by Rotfuss and not just kind of like some nerd reading into things, I think that's class. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant little thing there. And if it's not planned, he should pretend it was. <laughs> <laughs> totally. He, well, you know what he should do? He should sit down in a bar with someone to write a story and he that, that person should write his story. And <laughs> he should narrate that story and then just like inflate everything. <laughs> yeah, I totally thought of all those theories. Um, there's Yeah, there's loads and loads of different kinds of magic in the series. Uh, which you will be aware of from what you've read so far. Uh, but apparently there's actually even more than he's revealed so far in the texts. I remember he, he did an AMA a couple of years ago and he was like, yeah, there's like these six, there's these six kinds of magic, but there's also others I haven't explained to you yet. Hmm. Um, some you can figure out apparently. Some, if you're, if you read really, really closely, you can figure out what they are. Um, Cause he was like, oh, he, he said something. Oh, I didn't realize that I actually told you about that one yet. He had forgotten. He'd mentioned one kind of uh tangentially did he really um, know or is he fanning the flames of fan speculation yeah he could be yeah. <laughs> that's true <laughs> he's he literally writes down lies for money so he's not trustworthy <laughs> <laughs> i love that fiction is lies for money that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell lies for food the, uh, I, I get the impression that um, he, a lot of the magic is just based off stuff he did in college, which, okay. which like he took various classes and was like, oh, that'll make an interesting magic system. Because like the, the whole idea of like bindings and, and stuff like that is, um, is kind of like it's thermodynamics linked and quantum entanglement linked. Like, you know, you do one thing to this, it has a connection yeah. to the other thing. So like you can, in that particular field, you can really see the sort of like, he was inspired by his his college courses, which I think is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. And also, do you know what's hilarious? And I, I couldn't help but think this when reading the book. This these lies that he wrote for money, right, are almost <laughs> verbatim what um, the, the sort of nonsense that like Deepak Chopper spews. Like Deepak Chopper, <laughs> he's he's always on about like you know quantum entanglement and like you 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 do something to this thing over here and affects that thing, and that is literally sympathy magic. Like literally sympathy magic, and I like I just 
burst myself. Sympathy like, magic is more plausible. Yeah, it's exactly. It's more plausible. It was based on a college course. Like, of course, it's more plausible. Um, but uh, two more things. Sorry, yeah. I've been going for ages, but I'm really enamored by this book. Um, the I rarely ever laugh at a book, like, properly, like, in hysterics laughing. But there's a scene with Elodin. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. Where, 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 Who's Elodin? What? Who's Elodin? He's the sort of crazy master guy who's a bit like everyone thinks he's mental. But he's a guy who has the, the name the of the wind. Master of naming. Master of naming. That's him. Yeah. Um, there's a bit in the book where Quote wants to be taught by him. That's not the phrase they use. Like uh, He wants him to be his mentor. And then Elodin kind of is like, well, you have to prove it and all like blah, blah, blah. And then at one point, Elodin, like he has him up on a roof. And he's like, he's like giving this big spiel about like how, you know, you have to take the jump and all this sort of things. And then Kvothe's like, okay, he wants me to jump off the building. Okay, I'm going to jump off the building and then he's going to call the wind up and I'm just going to float back up to the roof and everything will be fine. And then Elodin does nothing to dispel this and Kvothe just jumps off the roof and like breaks all his ribs. And then Elodin turns around and is like, well, that was a crazy decision. Why would I teach someone who's that rash? And it's just like, Yes! It's a total inversion of what you expect from a kind of a mystical relationship between a teacher and a student. <laughs> yeah, a complete inversion. I like, like, and it really hit me because, again, I was like, Cole, I was, I was totally on board. I'm like, okay, he's going to summon his powers and we're going to see the mastery and the sort of like brilliance of Elodin. And you're just kind of mm-hmm. like, the guy's actually cracked. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing. Like, I haven't, I haven't laughed that hard since when I was really young and I read Artemis Fowl. And I'm not proud of it, but there's like a, there's a poo related joke in that book that had me in stitches, that had passed Edgar in stitches. And I have not laughed so hard since then. And I'm so grateful to Name of the Wind for making me laugh. I was there, I was there cooking, like I was there doing my chicken and I just like, I had to stop and take a break because it was just so funny. (laughs) But he also, he also does like, there's loads of subversion of like, um, fantasy tropes in that like this trope of the great teacher like he's averts that and then there's another little like uh, incidental passage later on where they're talking about distance like he has to travel x distance and he mentions league and then some mm-hmm. character just like is like well league's not a real measurement it's just made up by like farmers wanting to sound like they know what they're doing or whatever and it was kind of like oh that's really cool because it's like you know the way if you want to make something sound middle earthy and fantasy you know you do leagues and yeah. this like immediate dispulsion of that is like no no we don't use leagues they're stupid we use real measurements <laughs> and I just think it's great so good anyhow I love that book and thank you for listening to me Bill not at all my pleasure um, and I am on to Gunslinger now I'm, I'm pretty sure that book Stephen King me, by Stephen King I'm pretty sure yeah. that book won't make me laugh as hard as Elodin did um, but uh, yeah, it's not a funny book it's, it's a very not a good f- book, though. It's a good book, because I've read it before. It is a good book. Um, it, uh, yeah, so perhaps we can have Book Corner next month, and we'll, we'll talk about, uh, about, sure. about um, The Gunslinger. Um, I'm going to make a very, very quick recommendation while we're on the topic of books. Yeah, yeah, totally. Go for it. I recently read uh, Handmaid's Tale. Oh, <gasps> this is on my list. Okay, should I, should I, oh no, I can't get this. I was going to download this, but it doesn't exist in audiobook form. No, that's a shame. Yeah. Anyway, how many um, make the recommendation? Yeah, it's, it's very, very good. It's, uh, 
it's been recently made into a TV show, which also apparently is, is very good. And Margaret Atwood has, has been involved, uh, I think, reasonably closely with the adaptation. Um, and it's got Elizabeth Moss as the main character, and she's a fabulous actress. I, I don't know who this is. What's she been in? Uh, have you ever seen Mad Men? I have not, but hold on a second. The captain and I are looking for new stuff to watch. Um, that might be a thing to watch. No, I haven't, I haven't seen that. Is she in anything else? Uh, the only other thing I've seen her in is The West Wing. <laughs> I also haven't seen that. But anyhow, keep going. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so it's the, the, the premise of it is it's set in uh, near future... Actually, it was written in the 80s, so it might actually be slightly in the past now. But anyway, um, it's set in kind of in America under a theocracy where women don't really have rights anymore. And it's told from the point of view of a woman who's essentially, she's a handmaid and she's uh, essentially a kind of a, a, she's used for breeding. Men with with, uh, powerful positions in the society are given handmaids to breed with because like people are infertile in in, in after the events of like a war or something. And so it's, it's, it's all t- told from her point of view and it's utterly, utterly chilling. Like it's really, really, really bleak. Um, and at the end, like there's this like really, really, uh, kind of like stark ending, but anyone who reads it, uh, read it with my particular interests in mind. I won't say any more than that and, and, and give anything away, but it was just like, there's a thing at the end, which particularly for me just made it one of the best things I've read in a long time. Turns out Napoleon was... <laughs> <laughs> yes, the main character is Napoleon all along. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, that's a shame because I heard good things about that book and I was literally, literally today when I bought Gunslinger, I uh, skipped over Handmaid's Tale because it was next on the list and I just couldn't get it, so... Maybe maybe I'll buy a Dead Trees version. I don't know. Um, yeah. There is uh, one last thing, and I realize this is this is not really connected to world building at all, but this is the green room. Um, a quick thing on TV, just because you brought up Mad Men. Mm-hmm. I have watched, started watching Orange is the New Black. Oh, cool. And I realize I am so far behind the rest of the world here, but, you know, bear with me. Um, yeah. The, I'm really, really disappointed in that show. Really? Yeah. Like, season one was meh. Season two was stunning. Like, that was brilliant. Like, the intrigue, um, you know, when V comes back. Have you seen the series? Have you watched it? I've, I've seen all of it, yeah. Yeah. So, when V comes uh, g- comes back into the prison and the whole, like, the big matchup between V and Red, and that's really, really great. Yeah. And all the little subplots, they just, and they all culminate so brilliantly at the end. And then season three, the one I'm at, is so incredibly bad. I'm just, yeah, I'm, it's I'm literally stopping. Terrible. It, it's, it's, it's awful. Like, it's absolutely went, went from Four is a lot better, and five is excellent. Now, do you need to have watched three and four to watch five? Possibly. Ah, yes. Yes, you definitely, you definitely need to have watched four to watch five. See, I'm not like I, I genuinely, I'm not sitting through the rest of three. Like it's just there's nothing happening, and it's it's just weird. And like the the relationship between Piper and um, your one from the seventies show, uh, what's her name? Alex. Alex, that's it. Um, Alex. Laura Preppen. They their relationship's just weird. Like it just goes really strange and in a t- in a really implausible way. Like they, you know, they went from being lovers to like kind of being 
girlfriends and like this whole shtick that they're together but they've always kind of been together like they broke up for a little bit and it just it takes some really unnatural turns like the writers don't have a clue what to do and mm. they're just they're just floundering and it's it's really annoying me because like i care when a tv show takes time away from me like if i spend an hour watching a thing i want to like drive enjoyment but like third season it's just absolute pants so when you mentioned mad men there I might actually just start watching Mad Men and just forget Orange and New Black because, like, no, nah, we're done here. Orange and New Black, not happening. Uh, I, I, I think it's worth it for season four and five. How many episodes do you have left in three? Like, a little bit over half. Okay, so, like, four hours. Oh, I know, but... <laughs> Mad Men's really slow. Mad Men, like, not much happens for a long time in Mad Men, but it's, it's all about character. It's a real slow burn kind of character. Uh, study hmm what's your view on House of Cards um I really liked uh the American House of Cards now uh, the, the one with Kevin Spacey yeah uh, I really like it I really like it there's uh, I mean it's it's occasionally absurd there's like some st- occasionally stuff in it that's just kind of silly um, and unrealistic but overall it's it's good yeah I like it okay Hmm, maybe, maybe. But you know me, I just tend, to, I like liking things, so maybe I'm not the best person to ask. That, well, this, this, is, this is true. Um, do you know what was great, though, um, in terms of uh, Netflix series, uh, Stranger Things? I haven't watched it. Okay, you should watch that. That is great. No. 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 Why, why, why not? It's got plucky kids. It's got plucky, oh God. Yeah, but, but why is that a deal breaker? I hate that. Yeah, I well, hang on. In your head, though, when you think plucky kid, are you thinking like Anakin Skywalker, like young Anakin Skywalker? Because it's a little bit different than that. N- not just that. Just like I, I know it's like the whole eighties pastiche thing, and it's just it's no, it doesn't interest me at all. I, I, I feel I would just get really annoyed watching it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I and it's because I've heard it's I've heard it's really really good, and it's 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 um like what I know of it is really interesting. Um, and like the kind of the supernatural elements and stuff to it, but it just I I just feel like I would get really irritated with it with the kids in it. Okay, well that that is a problem considering the kids are the main characters. There's no there's yeah. no getting around the kids. Um, Eleven's cool. The like the you do you know the characters? Do you know the cast roughly? No, not really. Okay, well the the central kid, like the kid uh, around which the whole thing uh, hinges, is just a really really cool character. And mm-hmm. um, mild spoilers, but if you're not going to wor- watch it, I feel like I can keep going. Um, as long as it's mild. It's very mild. It's just maybe d- just describing her demeanor. Okay. Yeah. She's, um, she's very introverted and developmentally stunted, I would say. Okay. Uh, because of the, uh, the treatment she underwent, which you'd find out in the thing. And so yeah. she's not the plucky kid. She's quiet and silent and brooding and mm-hmm. uh, obviously has like these magic powers and things like that. But also there's moments in it where it's just really touching where like that sort of like, like uh, facade breaks and there's real human moments with her as well, which are just glorious. Um, so she's a great character and she's and the, the, the girl who, um, who, who plays her is just a, an amazing actress. She does a stunning job. Mm. Um, and I don't want, I don't want Stranger Things to have another season. It's it's getting another season, but it, it, we stop. It's done. 
Just leave it at this small run, and it was great. But th- I think they're going to bring ca- like dead characters back, and it's just going to go on and drag. Right. And, and I really don't want that to happen because like it's a glorious self-contained thing, and I hope they don't ruin it. Like if they ever bring back Breaking Bad, they're going to destroy Breaking Bad if they do that. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. and I don't just just leave it alone. You know, you got a good thing. Just leave it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Um, um, have you seen the OA? No. It came out a little bit after uh, Stranger Things, like a few months later, and I think people were saying it was kind of a, a similar kind of a successor sort of thing. Um, it has a really, really divisive ending. Hmm. Uh, like, it's 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 quite an interesting journey. I really don't know whether I actually enjoyed it overall or not, but it was it was an enjoyable journey, um, and it was it was quite compelling and engaging. But it's also really annoying in that the entire, the entire thing of the series is people finding the least efficient solutions to their problems. Like every time, like someone solves things, it's like, why did you do it that way? That was such, oh, it was so dumb. <laughs> what a dumb way to like solve that problem. <laughs> uh, I feel like you've have you complained about this on social media? I think you have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so wait, if you said it's similar to Stranger Things, is it the same sort of like um, coming of age crossed with supernatural stuff? No, that's not really a coming of age thing. And as I said, I haven't seen Stranger Things, so I don't know. But I, I saw people making comparisons okay. to that effect. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, all right, okay. There's some 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 watching for me, perhaps tonight, because again, I. I'll, I'll take on board the thing about sticking with Orange is New Black, but man, it's an awful lot of time and an awful lot of nonsense to wade through. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, three three is poor. And on a final note, Red is class. Like, yeah. Like, that was Janeway, man. She's <laughs> like, better than Janeway. Yeah, but it's crazy that she, like, can, well, obviously, you know, great actors can portray many different characters, but it's great that mm. she could do, like, you know, tight-lipped Janeway and then sort of like this bombastic like Russian mafia sort of character it's just great like she's like she's such a good actor so uh, mm-hmm. such a good actor like um and she's the the best character in that I think for me anyways like red it, red it, it, it goes up and down for me I think yeah I think she, she's certainly a contender um and I see I thought when I found out that Janeway was I, I should what, what's her name Kate Mulgrew. That's it, Kate Mulgrew. Uh, when I found out that Kate Mulgrew was playing a Russian, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. This is this is not a good choice, casting people, but it's totally believable. She totally pulls it off. Like, um, mm-hmm. And even if it's slightly silly, like the way she kind of goes like, oh, did you taste the Petrushka? And it's kind of like you're <laughs> deliberately putting on a bit of a hammed up Russian accent, but it's kind of funny and I, I really enjoy it. Anyhow, anyhow. We've spent. We, wait, that? We, we need to because we. Well, one, I told the captain she could come home before nine. It's now ten to nine, um, <laughs> and then also we've spent way too long talking about stuff that isn't world building. Uh, so we'll leave it here. We we'll leave it at that. Cool. So uh, what you called? Thanks a million for everyone for watching. The usual stuff. If you want to support the show, uh, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash artifexian. And Bill, I will see you next month. See you next month, and until then, Edgar out. Oh, we got them on time! <laughs>